Uh, I hope that you are ready to open the Word of God. We're in John chapter 11 this morning. I was struck by this particular passage just in the idea that Jesus here calls himself the resurrection and the life. Something I think that is so seminal for our Christian faith and something that I think still speaks to us even here this morning, 2,000 odd years later. You know, Charles Dickens, he begins his timeless tale of that, that old Christmas grump Ebenezer Scrooge with those very abrupt words. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. He's writing those words, of course, about uh, Scrooge's business partner, Jacob Marley, of course. They've, uh, he's been dead for quite a while. And, of course, if you remember the story, you've seen perhaps that, uh, that story portrayed in various venues and whatnot. But uh, eventually Marley haunts Scrooge on Christmas Eve, and he warns him of some impending ghostly visitors he's about to have that night. All of which to say, I think it's interesting because I think in a a matter of speaking, that's how John opens up this particular section of his gospel. Which is just to say that Lazarus is as dead as a doornail. (laughs) That's what I think he means when you get to verse 17. When it says that when Jesus came, he found that he had lain uh, uh, lain in the grave, he, that is Lazarus, four days already. Jesus' apostles, they've heard the news of Lazarus and his illness, and now they have made their way to tend to their friend, tend to Jesus' dear friend Lazarus. But John here tells us it's too late. He's already missed it. He's already been in the grave four days already. He's dead, dead, dead as a doornail, leaving behind two grieving sisters, Mary and Martha. And I think that that's what's most striking as we get into this passage. Just the fact that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are truly beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were as much his personal friends as they were his disciples. Note back in verse 3 of the same chapter. It says, Therefore Lazarus' sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Look at verse number 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then look at verse number 36. Then said the Jews, behold, how he loved him. This wasn't just a friendship. This wasn't just uh, sort of an acquaintance. This was a deep bond that Jesus shared with these three individuals. Which I'm sure is why it made absolutely zero sense to Mary and Martha that Jesus wasn't there. Jesus never showed up. Mary and Martha, they did all that they could. Again, verse 3, they share this news that, that Lazarus was sick. They sent unto him a messenger saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. But Jesus never showed up. And now this Lazarus and his passing brings this village of Bethany to its knees, so to speak, leaving these sisters to search everywhere for comfort, search for some measure of solace. And look at who fills that void. Look at verse 19. And many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. A choir of Jews here. 
mourning with these sisters, come from Jerusalem, which, as it says in just the previous verse, is only a couple miles away. They come over, and they come alongside these two sisters to grieve with them. And I think very clearly there's a sense in which these Jews were filling the space that these sisters wanted and expected Jesus to fill. (laughs) They're the ones here, as it says, they're comforting them concerning their brother, but it didn't very much matter to them because Jesus wasn't there. He's who they really wanted to see. He's who they really needed to hear from. And he wasn't there. Where is Jesus? Such is why in verse number 20, as soon as Martha hears just uh, uh, the briefest news that Jesus is coming, he's on his way. Notice she sprints out to meet him. Look at verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. She runs out. She hears just the briefest news that Jesus is coming. And she sprints out and meets him right in the middle of the road. And there she foregoes any sort of friendly pleasantries. Not, hi, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. Can I offer you a cup of water? She gets right to the point. God, where, where were you? Why weren't you here? Lord, if only you had been here, then my brother, he wouldn't be dead right now. He wouldn't be already buried right now. Sit for a moment. As I did when I was reading this passage, just sit in the grief of those words. This teacher whom she loves somewhat disappointed her here. And she's grieving. She is at a loss. She's devastated. Her dearest brother is gone. And the one person she expected to show up never showed up. And again, it's not as though he didn't know. It's not as though he wasn't aware. He knew. He received the message, as it says back in verse number 3. The messenger came, delivered the, the exact wording. Lazarus is desperately sick. Please come quickly. Please come to where we are. So how confusing it must have been for Mary and Martha to sit there day after day with no sign of Jesus. No sign of the one that had worked miracles, of the one who had cast out demons with a word. No sign of the one that they knew and believed and they trusted could do something for them. Day after day they watch. Their uh, sort of watchmen, they, we might say, are looking at the, at the outskirts of the village of Bethany. They're watching on the horizon for some glimpse of Jesus to crest over that hill. And every day there's no news. And eventually Lazarus' sickness progresses, culminating in his passing. She's at a loss. A confusing loss. A frustrating loss. Jesus, why would you do this? <laughs> Jesus, where were you? If only you had been here. It's the foremost question on their minds. And both of these sisters can't get it out of their heads. Look at verse 32, because Mary asks the same question. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Why would you let this happen? 
In a way, I think these questions from these sisters are perhaps all too familiar to many of us. I have no doubt that every single one of this, every single person in this room, in one way or another, has endured a situation, a circumstance, a season of life, perhaps, similar to the one in which Martha finds herself here now. Something perplexing has happened that seems rather innocent, just a sickness, and then all of a sudden a tragic turn happens. And that sickness turns fatal. You're at a loss. Something seemingly innocuous turns heartbreaking. Tragedy strikes. God, why would you let this happen? We're at a loss for words in those sorts of moments. When our faith is rattled to the core. And Martha, we ask like Martha does, where were you? Why would you do this? God, why would you let this happen? Why didn't you intervene? I know you could have done something, so why didn't you do something when you had the chance? These circumstances of this first century woman are not all that foreign to us. They're very familiar. They're right close to home, I would say. From Martha's perspective, Jesus did nothing. (laughs) Notice again, she says in verse 22, But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. Basically, she's saying this, I know you can do something. I know that whatever you do, whatever you pray for, God answers. So, why didn't you do anything? And I think it's because, as Jesus has already clued in his apostles, he had something entirely different in store and in mind for this little village of Bethany and for this family of Mary and Martha. Go back to verse number four. Because here I think we see something very fascinating that gives us a clue as to Jesus' sense of timing. Because he knew exactly what he's doing. Even when he was delaying his coming all of those days to that little village, he had a purpose. He had a point. Look at verse 4. It says, when Jesus heard that news, that courier that sent this message to him, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, notice, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. He tells his apostles right here in this moment that this sickness, the sickness that Lazarus has succumbed to is about to reveal for an amazing and exemplary display of God's glory. And so, surprisingly, after hearing about this news, what do you think Jesus does? Well, look at verse 6. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. He just chills out for two days. He hears about Lazarus and the urgency of his situation, and he stays where he is for two whole days. Now, where he was to where it is in Bethany was roughly a day's journey away. It's not like he couldn't have gotten there in an afternoon. So I imagine, again, I imagine myself as one of the apostles, (laughs) You heard the news just like Jesus did. And you're sitting there and now you're waiting. Why, why aren't we going? Why aren't we, why aren't we going to Bethany? Why are we just sitting around here? 
Aren't these Jesus' friends? Aren't these like really close people to him? Why aren't we doing anything? And eventually Jesus speaks very plainly with his apostles. And he lets the, the cat out of the bag, so to speak, and lets them know that Lazarus isn't just sick. He's dead. As dead as a doornail. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, matter-of-factly, Lazarus is dead. And then to shock them even more, he actually says that this is all part of the plan. Look at verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless Let us go to him. It ought to stun us something silly. That when Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is dead, he says, actually, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I wasn't by his bedside for your sakes. (laughs) Doesn't strike us as words that would come from a kind and compassionate Savior. And that's precisely because Jesus is after something so much greater and truer and deeper than just another random act of kindness where he heals a sick person from their sickness. Actually, as he clues them into, he's about to reveal that he is the great reverser of death. That's what he's about to show them. That's what he's about to display for everyone to see. Which is just to say, put yourself in Martha's question, in her shoes then, with that question. Because she's not privy to any of that. She doesn't have those insights that he has just given to his apostles about how he is glad, which sounds odd, but he's about to reveal something awesome through it. For all Martha knew, Jesus wasn't there. And so she, he responds to her question in verse 23. Jesus thus saith to her, thy brother shall rise. And Martha, not quite satisfied, she answers, Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's been a good attendant to the synagogue. She, she knows the faith. She reads the Old Testament scriptures. She's aware of the teaching of the resurrection. She's a good, perhaps, Pharisee student. But here in these words, I can just sense that this belief in the resurrection at the last day isn't really doing anything for her here now. You can sense that she's almost disappointed that that's all Jesus had to say. I know and I believe in a resurrection that's coming Sometimes, somewhere, at some point in the future, I know that that's going to happen, but I need something more. Jesus, I, I want some, some more tangible piece of comfort and solace. Can you give me something that's a little more immediate? She wants very present consolation, not just the future hope of resurrection. What is that going to do for my brother now? And that's when Jesus reveals exactly who he is and exactly what he's been up to this entire time. From from the moment he came to this earth, he has been who he says he is right here. As he says in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? To everyone in earshot 
Jesus is just, let everyone know that he's not just a teacher and a philosopher on the idea and the concept and the doctrine of resurrection. He has the authority because he is the author and the arbiter of resurrection itself. And he has come in the flesh as, as he says, the resurrection and the life. Revelation chapter 1, 18, it reveals to us that Jesus is the one, as it says there, who holds the keys of death and hell in his hands. He's the one who has ultimate authority over all things, yes, both living and dead. Just in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, look at verse 17. He has already hinted at this to his own apostles. Chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There's no one more powerful or more uh, having more authority or anything uh, other than this one who is the resurrection and life. That's who he is. And he tells Martha and everyone in earshot those words. I am the resurrection and life. No one's more powerful than me. No one has more authority than I do. Not even death itself. Which I would say makes these words not just a promise of just that. But also this amazing affirmation. That is within these words of Jesus here makes us realize that this resurrection that we look to, that we hope in, that we have as is so formative for our faith is not just relegated to some far off future day. It's not just out there. It's not just a future hope of resurrection. In Jesus' presence, resurrection is a present reality. He is the resurrection of life. He's not... Someday the resurrection and life. He is, I am, that I am, the resurrection and the life. And I will be those things forever. Which means he has the power of resurrection right now. Right in their midst, he is saying that. Which is why I believe when he says to Martha in verse 23 that he says, Thy brother shall rise again. He's not alluding to the end of all things. I think he's alluding to what would happen in just a few moments. Your brother's going to rise again because the resurrection and the life is on the scene. And death has no power over me. No matter how long he's been dead. You don't have to wait till the end of life for life to recourse through cold veins. I am the life. You don't have to wait till this world is over for the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And Martha doesn't quite get this though. She doesn't put two and two together. She listens to Jesus and then she just kind of gives this rote sort of confession. To that question that Jesus asked, Believest thou this? Verse 27, She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Did you notice? She says true things. Her confession is quite orthodox, we might say, but it is a little incomplete. Because it says nothing of death and resurrection. It says nothing of this power that Jesus has just hinted that he has, that he is. 
Such is why, if you jump down to verse number 38, she is protesting even as they walk up to the tomb. So they find the place where Lazarus was laid and buried. And it says in verse 38, Jesus, therefore groaning in himself. Again, he is troubled and moved by the awful power of sin that's on display in the death of his friend. So as he's groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he hath been dead four days. What are you doing? Haven't you ever been to a morgue, Jesus? Haven't you ever heard of this thing called rigor mortis? Lazarus' body is not going to smell very good. It's going to be quite stinky. Why would you want to open that tomb? Again, it's just a hint that Martha didn't have the full story. The full picture of who Jesus was. And in fact, no one else really did either. Look at verse 37 just before that. And some of them watching said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? They're thinking the same things. This guy, he says that he loved this Lazarus and he let him die. Why didn't he do anything? And now we're here uh, surrounding this tomb and we're talking about uh, opening up the grave, which sounds very dicey, sounds not like something we should do. There's some ethics, like what are we doing here? To which Jesus responds, I love, in verse 40. With this almost knowing response, and I can imagine his glance almost back to Martha saying, didn't I already tell you this? Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. <laughs> Didn't I already tell you who I was <laughs> and who I am? I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> and it's almost as if Jesus, when he says that, it's almost as if I, I just, <laughs> I'm reading into the text a little. <laughs> but I imagine him saying, you still don't get it, do you? <laughs> just watch. Just watch what I can do. And then in verse 41, notice what happens. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it. That they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he, has thus, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and they let him go. Power on display, glory on display. Jesus speaks, and that dead man came out of that tomb. And I read a lot of studies this in the past couple of weeks. Imagining how Lazarus came out. Because it says he's bound. Some commentators conject that, you know, he came out sort of like floating, hovering. Maybe, I don't know. One, I like this one a little bit better, though. Because it was almost humorous, but almost like you can see that this is something that perhaps Jesus would do. That when he says rise, that Lazarus rose, and he almost came shuffling out like this. Because imagine what that would do. For like five minutes, you hear this used to be corpse shuffling out of a tomb. 
Imagine what that would do for to like unsettle you as you're seeing it there. Then he comes out and they unloose him and it's Lazarus. No stench of decay. No stink of corruption. This guy was formerly dead, four days dead, as dead as a doornail. And yet the life-giving word of God himself spoke and he came to life and he went out of that tomb. Death had to release its hold on Lazarus because the life was there. The one who is life was on the scene. Death had no authority over that body. Death had no sway over what Jesus could do or say. It didn't matter that Lazarus was in the grave four days. And neither would have it mattered if he was in the grave for four hours or 40 years. When the life-giving word speaks, life is born immediately. That's who Jesus is. It says in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. That he is the word of the Father by whom all things were made and by whom all things consist now say just as precisely he is that he we could say is the creative word of God who gave birth to the universe with the vapor of his breath we could say he can just as surely speak life into dead bones I get glimpses of that wonderful passage in Ezekiel 37 remember Ezekiel sees this valley full of dry, dusty bones. And the Lord says to him, prophesy to them. What can I do, Ezekiel says. Only you know, God. And he commands him again, prophesy to breathe. And these bones start rising up. And then he prophesies again. And they start to have muscle and sinew come back on these bones. And the breath of life comes in them. That's because that breath of life is this word of the Father. This life-giving word of resurrection power. That courses through each and every one of you in here this morning. Because that's who Jesus is. That's who his spirit testifies of. He is the great reverser of death. He makes that awful power of death and decay and ruin and destruction work opposite. Go in reverse. And I think that's what makes this scene with Lazarus so poignant. Because you see, this is the, I would say, the perfect backdrop for what Jesus was about to do just a few short days from this moment. He, of course, is on his way to Jerusalem. Here in this chapter, he's on his way to be hung on a cross for the sins of the world. Which means that this raising of Lazarus is the last miracle he performs before his own passion and death. Which is why I think it's quite fitting that it's a, his, this final miracle is a miracle of resurrection. It's a little teaser, we might say, to the main event that's about to happen in just a week's time. <laughs> Here he reveals what he's been about the entire time. He's been about death and resurrection. That's the mystery to our whole faith in the redemption of Christ. It's about death and resurrection. And that's what he's showing us here in Lazarus. 
just a stone's throw away from where he would face his own mountain of death. Here he displays this resurrecting word. This word of resurrecting power. And he shows us in word and deed what his own death on that horrible criminal cross would accomplish. Namely this. That for all who believe... The only thing that's ever truly as dead as a doornail are the sins that Jesus has taken and left behind in the tomb. For you who believe this morning, that's the only thing that's as dead as a doornail. Your friends who have passed, if they believed in Jesus, you will see them again. Your loved ones, your siblings, your grandparents and uh, your great-grandparents. Those who have gone before us, they are not dead. They are yet living. Because of he who is the resurrection and the life. The only thing that's dead forever is your sin. Go with me really quickly to Colossians chapter 2. Because I want you to see that this is exactly what Jesus has accomplished on that cross. Colossians chapter 2. Listen to these words. Colossians 2 verse 10, and ye are complete in him, in Christ, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, resurrected together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. This is what he does. This is what Good Friday accomplished. The nailing of all of our sins to the cross. And when he was buried, the sins stayed buried and he walked out. He was raised to walk in newness of life. And you and I together, yes, this morning, if we have faith, we've been raised to that same thing. Romans 6. We were buried together with him by baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life. My friends, this morning, you are Lazarus. We are all Lazaruses here in this place. If you believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior, you are also, yes, believing in him who is the resurrection and the life. Him who is the author and the giver of all life. And you've been found to walk in the new life that comes from this life-giving word. That's what the gospel does, does it not? It sounds in ears that, that are not just sick. The gospel rings out in ears that are dead. As it says here, we were dead in sins. We're not just sick. We don't just need a remedy. We need resurrection. We need a wholesale rescue. And that's what Jesus gives us. 
He gives us life by laying down his own life for you and for me. He gives us life by giving us his. This is what we believe. This is what we hold firm. This is what we cling to. We cling to the resurrection life because we know that that grave holds no body. It holds no decaying bones. There's no carcass. There's no corpse. You won't find it because he walked out of it. And because he did, everything changes. Everything's different in this Easter world of ours. Sin is no more. Heaven is for real. Righteousness is given. Faith is true. I always go back to this and I I, I just can't escape it. Every time I think about this. Those same dunce apostles. Who scattered and fled at the sight of Jesus being arrested. They went on and we are studying in Sunday school how they're changing the world through the power of the church. They're willing to lay their lives down for the sake of this very message. And what's the only thing that's different between John 21 and Acts chapter 1? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changed everything. They saw, they saw by the power of the Spirit what everything was pointing to. And now these men who couldn't even get out of their own way, who after time and time again, after Jesus promising them that he's going to Jerusalem to die and to raise again, and even though they were scared of that very thing, they go on to change the world. As it says in Acts 17, they go on to turn the world upside down. Why? Because they preached the resurrection of Christ. And they didn't just preach it. They believed it. And they were willing to believe it. So much so that they were willing to die for it. My friends this morning. That tomb is still empty. And that throne in heaven is still occupied. We have a risen savior. And because he is risen. Our sins are buried. You are righteous this morning if you believe in Jesus. If you've been, if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, all of the fears and the doubts and the dreads and the confusion of all of this life, they dissipate. And the news of a risen Savior, risen for glory, risen for our righteousness. Yes, my friends, you are free in Christ. You are resurrected in Christ. His tomb could not hold him, and it won't hold you either. Acts 2.24, it's Peter in that opening sermon right after Pentecost. He says there that, that Jesus was raised because the grave couldn't hold him. The grave wasn't powerful enough to keep Jesus down. And my friends, neither will it you. If Jesus walked out of the grave, so will I. So will you. By the power of the resurrection and the life. And for all of eternity, we're going to be singing this song. The song of the angels, the song of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world who has washed our robes in his own blood and we are free forever because of him.
We stand redeemed this morning. Here, again, Colossians 2. We stand complete in him because the cross worked and the grave is empty. That means your faith is full. My friends, you are a Lazarus. You've been raised to life by the life-giving word of the gospel. If you believe in Jesus, that's your story. I wonder this morning... Is there someone who has not yet believed in that news? You're here on Easter Sunday surrounded by lots of church folk who believe in this thing called the resurrection. But I wonder for you this morning. Maybe you're still like Lazarus, still in the tomb of your own dead spirituality. You're still caught dead in trespasses and sins. There's only one word that can free you. It's this word who is Jesus Christ himself. And that by the power of his resurrection of life, not me, not my eloquence, not anyone else in this room, by the power of Jesus' resurrection of life, he can raise you to walk in newness of life this morning. He can raise you to walk free in his righteousness, free from sin and death. My friend, Make this that day, the day of your resurrection. Resurrection from your sins. <laughs> because that tomb is empty. He is not here. He has risen. Let us pray.